you know, really interestingly, one of the songs that we just sang was about Jesus setting us free and the grave actually being found empty. My question is, do you really believe that? I know you say that you do, but I mean, do you believe 2,000 years ago that God-man walked the earth, actually died on the cross, was put in a tomb, and rose on the third day? That's a question we skip over sometimes. I was sitting in a, in a coffee shop working a number of years ago, and I was sitting there, and I looked across the table, and this lady was reading this book by the late atheist by the name of Christopher Hitchens, a British journalist. And the title of this book is God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Well, I just can't be near somebody reading something like that without at least engaging them in conversation. As you guys said, I like talking to people who have different perspective. So I kind of leaned in. I said, hey, that looks like an interesting book, even though I had read it. I said, tell me about it. What's it about? You ever ask somebody a question and then 15 minutes later, they're still speaking and you're wondering, why did I open my stupid mouth? Well, she kind of she gets all excited. She goes, oh, this book is incredible. It kind of changed my life. She's going on and on. And she says, I said, well, what does it talk about? And she goes, well, it shows that evolution is true and God doesn't exist and, and religion has been nothing but the bane of human existence. I said, well, what does it say about Jesus? And she goes, oh, this is the most interesting part. And she kind of pauses and goes, think of the nicest person you know. And my grandma's image came to mind. She said, Jesus was just like that person. He wasn't the son of God, wasn't born a virgin, didn't rise on the third day. He was just a really nice guy. All I could think of was to ask one question. If Jesus was just a nice guy, then why did they crucify him? I mean, even the Romans wouldn't crucify Mr. Rogers. Right? Why did they crucify him? Friends, there's some good challenges to the Christian faith, but that is not one of them. <laughs> but the reality is 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Always be ready with an answer for the hope within and give it with gentleness and respect. You just saying hope in Jesus that sets you free. The question is, are you ready with an answer for somebody who says, how do you know that actually happened? Well, we're gonna walk in, we're gonna walk through a simple case how we can know that Jesus actually rose from the grave. But first off, I think there's three powerful things that follow if Jesus rose from the grave. Three of the biggest questions we ask about life are true if Jesus rose from the grave. For example, the question we ask, does God exist? If Jesus conquered the grave, God is real. We can point towards the existence of God like the amount of information in the cell points towards an author of life. I think the moral law points towards a moral law giver. The beginning of the universe points towards the beginner. But if Jesus is risen from the grave, this points towards us living in a supernatural world with power over life and death. So I have a rental car. If we walked out to my rental car and there was a huge dent in it afterwards and and Joel and I were walking out there. I said, Joel, what happened? He goes, man, I saw the whole thing. I couldn't stop it. I said, well, what happened? He said, I saw a feather float down and it just hit your car. Now, number one, he wouldn't say that. And number two, none of us would believe it. Why? 
because an effect as powerful as a damaged car requires a sufficient cause more than a feather. If somebody dies after predicting it, says they're going to be buried, three days rise from the grave, that points to the existence of some super powerful supernatural being with power over life after death. If Jesus risen from the grave, God is real. But second, I think we know which religion is true. You know, a lot of religions tell people how to get to truth. Jesus claim to be the truth. A lot of religions claim how to get to God. Jesus claimed to be God. And when he was asked to give a sign, what did he say? He pointed towards the sign of Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, pointing metaphorically to his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Jesus has not been risen, our faith is in vain. You realize that, right? If Jesus didn't actually rise, we are to be pitied and we're liars and Christianity is false. But if Jesus has risen, he's actually God in human flesh and we know which religion is true. So we know if God exists, we know which religion is true, but I think we also know that there's life after death. There's a movie, I'm curious if any of you have seen it, in the early 90s called Flatliners. Does anybody happen to remember, or if you have it, had Kiefer Sutherland, Oliver Platt, Julia Roberts, uh, and of course, Kevin Bacon is in this movie, because he's in every movie in the 80s and the 90s. Well, in this movie, these, they're all medical students, and they want to know if there's life after death. Instead of studying philosophy or religion, they flatline one another's hearts and then resuscitate one another back to life and say, what did you see on the other side? Now, it's a morbid experiment, but it makes sense in one sense. If you want to know what's on the other side, talk to someone who's been there and come back. Well, in the movie, they flatline the heart 30 seconds a minute, and they cap it like four minutes where you begin to have the possibility of permanent brain death. Well, Jesus didn't die four minutes. He was buried, and he rose on the third day. And in John, in his final speech, 14 through 16, what does he say? He says, I'm going to prepare a place with my Father for you. Friends, if Jesus has actually risen from the grave, God is real, Christianity is true, and there's life after death. That's in part why we sing about what sets us free. Sets us free from what? The fear of death sets us free from the constraints of this world and gives us an eternal perspective that Jesus has conquered the grave and we're already on the winning side. Quite literally, everything is at stake with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. So the question is, how do we know it's really true? I teach a full class at Biola University. I teach in a graduate program in apologetics. And I teach a full semester long class where we go in depth on this. We're not gonna go to that depth. Our goal here is just short, simple case to give you confidence that this is true, but also to help you be ready. If someone says, why do you believe this? You could have a simple answer for them. I think there's four facts about history that we can piece together and know with confidence. And the best explanation, in fact, 
is that Jesus is risen from the grave. So the first fact is that Jesus died by crucifixion. How do we know he actually died by crucifixion? Well, one way, interestingly enough, is to look at the medical evidence. There was an article, you can Google it and read it. It was 1986, but it was in the Journal of the American Medical Association, one of the most prestigious medical journals in my country. It was a theologian, a historian, and a medical doctor. And they wrote a peer-reviewed article about how somebody would die by crucifixion. It's called On the Physical Death of Jesus. And they showed you don't die by blood loss. You actually die largely by asphyxiation. You die by asphyxiation. Where you actually, with your hands nailed in, have to pull yourself up and breathe and exhale up and down, which is why they would come to the shins, shatter the shins, and you couldn't pull up anymore. Crucifixion, friends, was scientifically designed by the Romans to cause maximal pain and the utmost shame and humiliation. It was so painful, they actually invented a new word. You know, excruciating literally means out of the cross. So if you stub your toe, use a different word. <laughs> Jesus is whipped by the Romans, nailed to a cross. But what's fascinating is in this passage, this journal article walks through how it describes in John chapter 19, when the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. By the way, John was actually a witness of this. Some of the other apostles fled. John was a witness. But then it says, John 19, but one of the soldiers pierced his spear and immediately what came out? Blood and water. Now, if you read certain church historians, they interpret this like, well, maybe the blood refers to like, you know, some kind of like baptism or the blood of Jesus covers you and the water, it refers to, you know, some kind of spirit that's present. Like they interpret it metaphorically. But these doctors look at this and they say, wait a minute. Actually, if somebody dies by crucifixion, this white watery type substance called the pericardial sac, actually surrounds the heart. So if you died the way Jesus died, and you were pierced with a spear near that area, take a wild guess what would come out. Blood and water. But only at the medical point of death. Now, John doesn't know this. It was Luke who's the doctor. John's just reporting what he saw. That doesn't prove Jesus died, but that's a very interesting lineup of the facts that a medical doctor looks at and says, this is confirmation he was dead. Now, if you say, well, that still comes from the Bible, you know what's interesting is a Jewish writer, Josephus, and a Roman writer, Tacitus, from the early second century, Josephus is actually the end of the first century, both mention the death and crucifixion of Jesus. If you're not convinced... A crucifixion was the least heroic death you could invent for somebody. If you are starting a religion, you don't start it with somebody who was shamed and dishonored in an honor-shame culture. Friends, I can tell you we have full confidence that Jesus died by crucifixion. Now, most skeptics will agree with that. The next question is, how do we know the tomb Jesus buried in was actually empty. 
And by the way, it's amazing to think about. We actually know the name of the person, where he's from, and his socioeconomic status, Joseph Arimathea, who buried Jesus, and what religious body he was a part of that was public. All four Gospels report this. So how do we know when they came, the tomb's actually empty? Well, a friend of mine, Dr. Gary Habermas, who has studied the resurrection, I think more than anybody alive, he's been studying about 70 hours a week for years. And starting in January, he has a four-volume, 5,000-word historical defense of the resurrection coming out. Now, I don't know about you, but I get excited about that. Maybe you're like, I'm glad you read it and tell us what you find. I get like excited about that kind of stuff. Well, he's documented about two dozen arguments for the empty tomb. We won't walk through all of those. But a couple that are really interesting that have always stood out to me is in all four Gospels, who can tell me who discovers the empty tomb? Women do, exactly. All four Gospels report women. Now, why does this matter? In the patriarchal culture of the first century, a woman's testimony was not considered as significant as a man's. Men tended to be more educated and held much of the authority in that culture. In fact, the more significant an event was, the least likely they would rely upon a woman's testimony. That's just the way the culture worked. So for the apostles, and you're inventing a story, and you need the tomb to be empty, and you need people to believe you, who's the least likely witnesses they would invent? The women. Makes no sense. Another one that I find is interesting is what city was Jesus crucified in? This is not a trick question. <laughs> he was crucified in Jerusalem. Now, if you're, by the way, he was crucified. Crucifixion was a public event. Why? The Roman Empire wanted people to see others crucified and in fear, not become a criminal or go up against the Roman Empire. So people were crucified in public places. And Jesus was buried in a known tomb. So if you're inventing a story that took place a few weeks ago, so to speak, when they start reporting this, where would be the hardest place on the planet to concoct such a story? Where would it be? It'd be Jerusalem. The apostles come back to Jerusalem and the church starts in the very place where Jesus was crucified and buried. In fact, you know what Peter says in Pentecost? He says, these events happen, and he appeals to his audience. He says, and you yourselves know that this is true. If they were making it up, where would they go? They go to America, they go to Australia, they go to New Zealand, they go to China, they go anywhere but the very city in which these public events happen. Why do they go there? because they're at least minimally really confident that these things happen. An investigation will not uncover the body. Now, one other one really quickly is what was the first explanation the religious leaders gave for the empty tomb? What did they say? The disciples stole it. Now, stop and think about this. If they stole the body, what are they conceding about the status of the tomb? The body's gone, right? 
You don't say to your teacher, my dog ate my homework, if you have your homework. You give that an excuse if you don't. So even the first explanation assumes that the tomb was empty. It's so very simply put, and I've taken the time to memorize this when people ask me, I can go, you know what, Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, we know the tomb was empty. But number three, we have appearances of Jesus. How do we know Jesus actually appeared to people? Now, I'm going to state this very carefully. Is virtually all scholars from the left to the right agree that the disciples had experiences that they believed were of the risen Jesus. Almost all scholars from the left to the right, Christian, non-Christian, agree that the disciples minimally had experiences that they believed were of the risen Jesus. So if you say it's not of the risen Jesus, then you have to come up with some other explanation to account for the belief that they had experienced and seen the risen Jesus. Now, we could talk about a lot of lines here, but one very interesting fact is in a letter Paul wrote to, first, uh, to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15 is focused on the resurrection. Well, in this chapter, what's interesting is Paul writes something really, I'm going to read this to you. It's 1 Corinthians 15, and it's verses 3 through verses 5. So Paul is writing to Christians in Corinth around AD 55. So probably about 25 years after the events that took place with Jesus. So there's still people around at that time. Listen very carefully to what Paul writes. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now what is Paul saying? He's saying, I'm about to give to you, the church at Corinth, something that was earlier given to me. He's passing on tradition, so to speak. What is Paul passing on? Let's keep reading. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the 12, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Now, what is, what is Paul doing here? Paul is passing on a short creed that had been given to him. So before they had the Bible written down, the question was, what do Christians believe? And they would have these short creeds that they would pass on that would capture the heart of the belief. That's what Paul does right here. He's saying, I'm passing on to you something that was passed on to me. Jesus died, he was buried, rose on the third day, appeared to Peter, appeared to the 12, appeared to the 500. Friends, what's fascinating is if Paul writes this in AD 55 and he's writing something that was passed on to him, what question should we ask? When was this passed on to Paul? And we know Paul visited the apostles three years after his conversion and then 14 years later. This creed in 1 Corinthians 15 is the single earliest account we have of what Christians believe. It's possible we could date it into four, five, or six years historically from the death of Jesus. It's possible, if not even likely. At the root of it is what? That Jesus died and he was buried and he appeared to people, to the 500, to the 12, to the women, to the seven. Now, some would say, well, 
why did Jesus only appear to those who believed in him? I have a friend who's skeptic, and we go round and round this stuff, and he goes, why didn't Jesus just show up to Pilate? And he's like, if I was Jesus, I wouldn't. I said, well, first off, you're not. <laughs> Second, I said, how do we know he didn't show up to Pilate? Just because we don't have a record of it doesn't mean it didn't happen. I said, but did Jesus only appear to those who believed in him? Because I can think of a few examples of people who were not followers of Jesus before. One we just talked about, namely Saul, who became Paul. Now, what's so interesting about Paul is, look, virtually all scholars will concede that Paul had an experience he believed was of the risen Jesus. So if you come up with some explanation to explain why all the disciples believe, you still have to explain the conversion of Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, after Billy Graham, of course, I'm just kidding. You still have to explain him, his conversion, and you can't use the same one for the disciples because Paul was not one of the disciples. Another example of someone who didn't believe was James, the brother of Jesus. If you're in Mark chapter, Mark chapter 3 and John chapter 7, Jesus' family did not believe in him. One of the worst things if you were a rabbi was to have your own family reject you. Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind. They tried to trick him. And yet James becomes a leader of the early church and dies as a martyr in Jerusalem in AD 62. What happened? 1 Corinthians 15 says, he saw the risen Jesus. What about Thomas? Thomas also didn't believe. By the way, can we stop calling him doubting Thomas? He was not a doubter. A doubter is somebody who wavers back and forth. What did Thomas say? I will not believe unless I can see. He was not a doubter. He flat out rejected it until he saw the evidence and then he came to believe. So Jesus didn't just appear to those who believed in him. Now to those who say, well, why didn't Jesus appear to more? I say, you know, more people call themselves followers of Jesus than anyone who's ever lived. Can we at least give him a little credit that he maybe knew what he was doing? But here's what we know. We know Jesus died by crucifixion. We have good reason to believe the tomb is empty. And then we have all these accounts of the 500, of Paul, of the disciples, of the women, that they saw the risen Jesus, the appearances. But the fourth piece that I find compelling is the transformation of the disciples. What it cost the disciples to believe in Jesus. Now, according to church tradition, Peter was crucified, Andrew was crucified, Philip crucified, Bartholomew flayed to death, James Grade beheaded, Matthew killed with a sword, Matthias stoned to death. That has nothing to do with smoking pot, just for the record. Thomas stabbed with spears, John died after exile, Luke hanged, James just thrown and beat, Mark dragged death by horse, and Paul beheaded. You've probably heard these stories in church tradition. I actually did my doctoral dissertation. I spent three years examining these accounts. And to be honest with you, for many of them, it's hard to know when history really ends and when tradition begins. I think of those 12, four of them we have confidence really died as martyrs. And two of them are more, more probable than not. Many we don't know. 
But I don't think we have to prove they died as martyrs. All that matters is we have these followers of Jesus who leave when he comes to believe, seemingly abandon him, go back to their lives, and then somehow are convinced that Jesus has risen from the grave and are willing to lay down their lives for that claim. Just read the beginning of Acts. What happens in Acts? Once the Holy Spirit comes down, they start living and proclaiming, and they are threatened, they're beaten, they're thrown in prison. We have Stephen martyred in the early chapters in Acts. But in chapter four and chapter five, Peter's basically told, if just stop preaching about Jesus, you know what he says? He says, we can't because we fear God more than we fear man. Something happened in the lives of the disciples that turned their lives upside down that they proclaimed a radical message and were willing to follow somebody who was crucified as an enemy of the state of Rome. Friends, to me, if we step back and look at this, we know Jesus was crucified. We have good reason to believe the tomb is empty. We have all these appearance accounts and we have the transformation of these disciples who said they had seen the risen Jesus. Now, if you get online and search this, there's probably dozens and dozens of alternate explanations. Like some people would say, maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. Well, that could explain the belief in the empty tomb, but that couldn't explain the appearance to Paul. Some would say things like, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He swooned and he came back. And that theory just doesn't have a lot of credibility to me. Number one, we know he was dead. Number two, it was the skeptic himself, David Strauss, who said, really? So if Jesus is crucified and survives, he shows up to his disciples and says, hey, believe in me, and you too can have a resurrection body, that would not be convincing to the disciples. He would have been bruised and bloodied. One common explanation is that the disciples saw hallucinations. This is one of the most popular academic explanations. Now, if the disciples saw hallucinations, this doesn't explain Paul, does it? It also doesn't explain the empty tomb. So you can start to see how these alternate theories account for some facts, but can't account for all the facts. By the way, hallucinations are like dreams. They're individual experiences that people have. I mean, my wife and I, we've had an awesome time here in New Zealand, but, you know, it's tiring to come this far. We're like 19 hours ahead of California. It's a long flight home. Like, imagine if next time we're like, you know what? I just dreamed I was in New Zealand. Honey, go to sleep and join me in this dream. Some of you are chuckling, looking at me, knowing it doesn't work that way because dreams are individual experiences. So are hallucinations. Some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Maybe the disciples stole the body. Well, first off, they had to get by the guards. Second, if that's the case, then they were willingly suffering for something they knew was false. Why would they invent a story they knew was false? 
and be willing to suffer and die for it. That doesn't make sense to me. But you know what the biggest objection to the resurrection is? I was at a conference this weekend with a great ministry called Thinking Matters. And it was the church, Bethlehem Baptist, not far from here. And, and a fellow came who's a skeptic, who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We, had a, we really had a great conversation. And he raised the heart of the objection that I hear more than any other objection. You know what it was? He said, I just can't believe in the supernatural. In other words, he said, my issue's not with the facts. My issue is with believing that supernatural things actually happen. It's the level of worldview. So it's actually believed that the largest tree that has ever existed is in Sequoia National Park in California. It's called the Great uh, General Noble Tree. I think it's 13 adults, hand in hand, men, like around the base of this thing. It's so old, it would almost trace back to the time of King David, but it was chopped down and now there's just a stump of it. Well, in the 1800s, when these sequoia trees, sequoia trees are actually bigger than redwood trees. Redwood trees are taller, sequoia are the biggest tree on the planet. And by the way, the seed, the cone is about this big. Biggest tree, smallest seed. And I keep one on my desk to remind me that small things can have great power and great impact. I literally look at it all the time. It's on my desk. Well, when these trees were discovered in California, discoverers went back to Chicago and described these massive trees. And nobody would believe them. They said, we've seen it. We have testimony. And they wouldn't believe them because in their mindset, trees did not get that big. So they went back cut down the general noble tree, brought it to the World Fair in Chicago in 1897, put it up, and still some people wouldn't believe. Google it. It's actually called the Great California Hoax. Now, this is the interesting thing, is when we're presented with data that doesn't confit our expectations, we have two options, don't we? We reject the data or we change our expectations. The root of, I think, the largest objection to the resurrection is just that we all know in our scientific age that miracles don't happen. That's the root of the objection on the level of worldview. To me, that's what's called begging the question, deciding the outcome before you even look at the facts. Friends, I think we have a pretty good case that the resurrection happened. We can invite an investigation. My father was a skeptic, and one of the things when he set out to disprove Christianity was actually the evidence for the resurrection that convinced him that Christianity is actually true. But these aren't just historical facts that we study and move on. They're actually profoundly meaningful. And I would argue, help us find satisfaction for the deepest human desires that we have. What do I mean by this? Now, there's a reason why I'm wearing this Spider-Man shirt. Some of you might have been offended, like you're preaching in a superhero shirt. Well, there's two reasons why. Number one, my man, Jaden, I hope you don't mind me calling you out. This morning, I was introduced as a Spider-Man fan. 
and he came up and he brought me, he went home to a Spider-Man collection and brought two like really nice comic books. One of them was this exact comic book and I had the shirt back in my apartment. Super special comic to me, early 90s by Todd McFarlane was the artist. And so you blessed me this morning. I told you that, so I was like, I'm just gonna preach in this shirt since he gave me the very comic of the shirt I brought. But second, I'm a superhero fan. How many of you have seen the movie Infinity War or Endgame? Let me see your hands, most of you. Do you realize the theme of that movie? So that movie opens up and Thor is captured by Thanos, the bad guy, and Thor's brother Loki has a choice. Am I going to allow Thanos to kill my brother or give him one of the power stones? Will I exchange this human life? You fast forward and there's an interesting relationship between Gamora and Star-Lord. And Gamora says to Star-Lord played by Chris Pratt, if Thanos captures me, I want you to end my life so he can't use me to get the soul stone. Fast forward a little bit in that movie, you have Scarlet Witch and she's in a relationship with Vision who has one of the stones in his forehead. And they have to decide, will they destroy the stone to keep Thanos from it? But what'll happen? They will lose Vision's life in the process. Fast forward to one of the most epic scenes in Marvel cinematic history in my humble estimation. Iron Man is fighting against Thanos and Doctor Strange has a choice. Will I allow Thanos to kill Iron Man or give Thanos the time stone? Do you notice a theme running through this movie? When is it okay to sacrifice a human life? Now Thanos thinks I can sacrifice half the universe to save the other half. Captain America iconically says, we are not in the business of exchanging lives. Until the only one out of 14 million ways to save the universe is for the hero, Iron Man, to willingly lay down his life. Is this starting to sound familiar? You know, it's interesting when Gamora is up and Thanos realizes to get the soul stone, you have to sacrifice something you love. And he realized, she realized he's about to sacrifice her. You know what she says? She says, this is not real love. This is not true love. True love doesn't sacrifice another. True love sacrifices oneself for another. That's why Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. I'm a superhero fan. I saw that. I'm like, holy cow. Here's Marvel doing 20 movies, 10 years, billions of dollars, and they're trying to tell the greatest heroic story they can tell, and they can't get away from the Christian story. <laughs> they can't. Now, I don't think they did it intentionally, especially where I've seen where some of the movies have gone more recently, but what I do think is it's written on our hearts. And we see it in other movies, don't we? Movies like Big Hero 6, Baymax lays down for the boy. You see it in movies like Inside Out, the Bing Bong character lays down his character for life for joy. We know intuitively 
that the greatest act of love is to lay down your life for another. Marvel's fiction, Disney movies are fiction, but the story of Jesus is true. That's why C.S. Lewis said that it's the myth made fact. It's the myth in the sense that we see this throughout the history of literature because there's a yearning in the human heart for it, that God was preparing us. And then when Jesus came down, he actually demonstrated that act of love. Friends, not only is Christianity true, it is the single, the resurrection is the single most meaningful and important act in history. It says, you're not a mistake. You are made in the image of God. God has a plan for your life and you are really set free as we sung in that song before. Amen. Thanks for letting me share. I want to pray for you as we wrap up. My friends, let me end by saying this. Christianity is really true. Do you actually believe that? It's true. We have nothing to be afraid of by an examination of the evidence. It's actually historically true. It's the myth made fact. Amen. Father, thanks for this church. Thanks for just the way you are working in them and through them to be a light in their community. And I pray just in this season of change, may your spirit just pour down and uh, motivate them and equip them and humble them and inspire them just to be a light in your community, that their lives would be different so others could look in and just see that they really have been set free from the worries and stresses of this age and are able to live a life for you. And we praise in your name. Amen. Amen.